Well, today, as we begin this series talking about family and family relationships and family dynamics, as we talk about family in the roaring 20s of the 2020s, here's a great question that I want us to ask at the very beginning. Over the last 100 years, how has family changed? Over the last 100 years, how has family changed? You might imagine that there are about a billion answers, and if you would imagine that, you are absolutely correct. But here's what's interesting to note. In 1920, in the 1920s, culture was roaring, but family was boring. Culture was roaring, but family was boring. And when I say that, what I really mean is that while culture was roaring and changing, family was very predictable. At the start of the 1920s, family was incredibly predictable. Families, for the most part, looked and acted the same. Almost all families consisted of a mom and a dad who lived together, children who lived with mom and dad. And even uh, and even though people lived shorter amounts of time back then, most children had grandparents who lived fairly close to them. Culture was roaring, but family was fairly boring and fairly predictable. But What's really interesting about that is that when you look at family life over the last 100 years, many of the major shifts that we are seeing in dramatic fashion today actually began to take place and began moving and shifting around and during the 1920s, during those Roaring Twenties. And while the name Roaring Twenties is attached to speakeasies and the end of prohibition and the beginning of mass entertainment, the name Roaring Twenties actually is attached to some of the big changes that began in the family in the 1920s. 20s. Let's look at some of the ways that 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 family has changed over the over the last 100 years. Um, in, in 1920, nearly two thirds of all people over the age of 14, because in 1920 adulthood began at 14. Nearly two-thirds of all people over the age of 14 were married. In 2020, nearly half of all people over the age of 18 are married. And the percentage obviously would drop significantly if you included people over the age of 14 because, well, duh. Um, uh, In in 1920, only around 250,000 out of 37 million people in the United States were divorced. Only 250,000 people. In uh, Last year alone, in 2020, 1,564,076 people divorced in 2018 alone. Um, in, in the average age of marriage in, in 1920, the average age of marriage was 24 for men and 21 for women. Um, in 2020, the average age of marriage was 33 for men and 31 for women. 10 years later, on average, with people getting married. In 1920, parents viewed the family as hierarchical, um, which means who's, you know, they viewed the dynamics of family as who's in charge and who listens. In 2020, parents view family as emotional. Well, we're friends. It's all about the relationship. It's all about how we how we love each other and how we're friends with friends with each other. In 1920, the US was US population was 50% rural and 50% urban, um, which was actually a dramatic change in the 1920s. This is one of those big things that changed in the 1920s. Um, in the US population population in 2020 is now 82% urban and 18% rural. Uh, in, in 1920, the average family size was 4.34. We don't know how you have a 0.34, but it means the average family was somewhere around four to five people living in one household. In, in 2020, the average family size is 3.15 people. Families are getting much, much smaller. And in the 1920s, 30% 35% of housing units had a telephone. In 2020, 
Almost 99% of families have a telephone. And we look at that, and the biggest question that I ask is, who's the 1% that doesn't? Who's the 1% that doesn't have a phone in their household? And so when you look at history, 100 years actually is a relatively short time period. And that's a lot of change. And then in that, there are some dramatic changes. And so we look at that, and a really good question to ask is simply this. Is all that change good or bad? Is all of that change good at bad? Are those good changes or are those bad changes? Certainly some of the things that have changed in regard to family are good. And certainly some of the changes were good for some members of the family. And even if they weren't good for everyone in the family. But looking at some of the changes and what was compared to what is, we might look and go, man, it seems like they had some things figured out that it would be great if we could actually go back Two. And so here's what's pretty easy to see. Over the last 100 years, family reality has changed a lot. Over the last 100 years, family reality has changed a lot. And it's left us you know, with our heads swimming. It's left us with our heads kind of going like, what is going on? How do we, how do we figure stuff out? Who's supposed to be doing what? And all of this kind of stuff. Is, is, are these changes good or are they bad? Family reality has changed a lot. And there's some good news among all of the change for those of us who follow Jesus. As Jesus followers over the last 2,000 years, family ideal has remained unchanged. Over the last 2,000 years as Jesus followers, our family ideal remains unchanged. And so in a world that's changing, in a world that's rapidly spinning, in a world that's where, where it seems like we can't quite keep up with everything that's changing in the family, the good news for you and I is our goal of what family is supposed to be and how family is supposed to function and how men, husbands and wives are supposed to treat each other and how children and parents are supposed to treat each other and how we're supposed to interact with each other and how we're supposed to be patient, how we're supposed to love one another, how we're supposed to do all of that has remained unchanged. And now what's interesting about that, though, is that, is that in my lifetime, I feel like one of the things that's kind of happened is it's become common for pastors and people in ministry to talk about a biblical marriage and a biblical family. Um, that, that what's interesting about that is that when you look at biblical family, there are no good examples to be found. Like there's, there's not a single one. You have Adam and Eve. They were created into perfection. They were the very first parents and their one, their kid murdered one of their other kids, which is not, which is something that nobody holds up as like, a, well, this is a great biblical example of family. No, it's not what, not a parenting goal that I have ever heard from a Christian pastor. Abraham was so impatient for a family that he married another woman and had a child, then sent them away when his main wife got jealous, which by the way, if you you have a main wife and a second wife. There's something wrong with that in the in the in the very beginning. But the fact that he his his main wife, his first wife, got so jealous of the second wife and the and their and his kid that he actually just sent them away into the wilderness is just crazy. Again, not a parenting goal, not a hashtag parenting goal. David could stand up to a giant, but couldn't sit down to have a difficult conversation with his son. Solomon had hundreds of wives and concubines. I'm just going to leave the, that to the, the imagination of, of how that could go wrong because it could go wrong in a million different directions, and it did. Um, the Old Testament prophets had a tendency to have children and then give their children names that were messages to the nation about God's wrath and frustration and coming judgment on them, which if you're the kid, you're like, well, thanks, Dad, for using, you know, I, I feel like I've been used by the Lord to help send the message that you want to send. Um, 
But now I have to live with this name for like the next 50 years. Like everywhere I go, I'm going to be like, when people say like, oh, what's your name? I have to be like, um, God's wrath is, is coming on you. Like, that, like, that's, like that's what these prophets did. One prophet was actually given a command by God to marry a prostitute and remain in pursuit of her even when she returned to her old way of life as a sign, as a signal to the nation of Israel about how God loved the nation and pursued the nation of Israel even when they turned away from him and turned to other other things beside God. And so here's something I think we have to at least acknowledge as we talk about family in the roaring 20s, as we talk about the ideal that God would have for us when it comes to our family. No one wants a biblical family. No one wants a biblical Matter of fact, I would say some of the reason that we have some of the drama that we have in families is that we maybe already have more biblical family than we want to admit. We think we're aiming for something, but we actually already have biblical families. No one wants a biblical family. No one sets the goal of having a biblical family. But here's, here's, here's the other thing that I want to make sure that we understand. At the same time, everyone should want a New Testament family. Everyone should want a New Testament family because Jesus and his earliest followers in the early church, they pointed to a version of family that was so different from what was expected and what was normal in terms of family. It was so much better for women and children in particular that in many ways, in many ways, we have still not caught up over the last 2,000 years. We still have not caught up to the ideal that Jesus and, their new, and his followers in the New Testament church, the ideal that they presented when it comes to family life. Now, so here's the New Testament passages talking about the ideal for family. And I'm going to read these fairly rapid fire and then draw some conclusions. In Ephesians chapter 6, or in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21 and going on into chapter 6, here's what we're told. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if we just stopped there, I could talk for the next four weeks about what that looks like in the, in the course of family dynamics. And if that, that dynamic of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, if that like just drove down deep into our hearts, all of our families would improve. That's the driving dynamic of all the ideal of family relationships in the New Testament. It says, for, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church, as the church submits to Christ. So you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. And then he closes off, he says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. It's love and respect. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, Respect your husbands, honor your husbands as, as, as you would respect Christ. That, that's, that's, that's what the dynamic that Paul talked about in Ephesians between husbands and wives. And then he goes on in Ephesians 6 to talk about the dynamics between children and parents. In verse 1, he says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. And if you're a parent of a toddler or any child or a teenager or anyone, you might want to just type amen in the comments right now. Children, obey your parents. Like, yes, Lord, I receive it. I receive that word. I receive it. I receive it. I receive it. He says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Verse four, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. 
Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So children, obey your parents. Parents, don't frustrate your kids. Don't frustrate your children. Like, wait, wait, we can even do that. I didn't realize I could frustrate my kids. Yeah, you frustrate them all the time. In Colossians, Paul writes to another church. He gives basically this exact same instruction. He does a little bit shorter version of it. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. As a husband, you go, oh man, I I think that's something I got to work on. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Verse 20, children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. And then in 1 Peter, Peter who had spent time with Jesus, he wrote this to husbands and wives. He said, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. He's speaking, he's saying like, hey, even if your husband's not a Jesus follower, as a, as a Jesus follower, you are, are responsible for the way that you treat him and the way that you respond to him. They will be won over by observing your, peer, your pure and reverent lives. In verse 7, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with, an understand, with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you, meaning you could probably beat her in an arm wrestling competition, but guys, you need to understand that she could probably beat you in a pushing a human being out of her body contest, okay? So like, it's like, it's like understanding that, that, that she may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. That's what the New Testament teaches about family life. That's what the New Testament holds up as the ideal when it comes to family. And so so if you read those verses, in in case you missed it, here's the New Testament ideal when it comes to family. The New Testament family ideal looks like this. Husbands, love your wives and be kind. Wives, respect and honor your husbands. Parents, be consistent with your children so you don't frustrate them. And children, honor and obey your parents. Now, I'm going to read that one more time because some of us are just going to need to hear it a couple times to understand what our responsibility is in creating the ideal in our family. Husbands, love your wives and be kind. Husbands, love your wives and be kind. Wives, respect and honor your husbands. Parents, be consistent with your children so you don't frustrate them. And children, honor and obey your parents. All right, well, let's, let's, play, let's pray and dismiss, right? I mean, we, we almost want to dismiss because we, we hear that and we go, well, man, I don't know any family that's lived up to that perfectly. I know very few who have even gotten kind of close. I know my own family doesn't get that right. Like, and, and if we're all being honest, whatever it is that we are instructed or commanded to do tends to be the last thing that we actually want to do, right? Like as husbands, we go like, I'm cool loving my wife when I feel like I got something in it for me. Like I feel like when I feel like I get something out of it, like I'm absolutely cool loving my wife when there's something I get in return. But loving my wife the way Christ loved the church, like selflessly and sacrificially, like I, I, uh, I don't know that I, like, when there's nothing in it for me, I'm still called to love. Like, I, I don't know that I love that. And when I talk to wives, like, the number, like, like, I don't, like, the word submission is one of those words that just go, yeah, I don't think I like that one, so I just cross it out. Like, I just, like, the last thing I want to do is submit to authority. I don't want to view my husband as an authority. And even that idea of respect and honor, you're going, like, he's not always deserving of my respect. He's not always deserving of honor. So, like, am I supposed to do that all the time? Children, when I, I mean, I, I was a youth 
pastor for a long time. And what I've learned in, in my years as a youth pastor and what I've learned in my now four years as a parent is children never want to obey their parents unless they think there's something for them at the end of their obedience. And even then, it's kind of like, eh, not really. Like, the, we don't want to do the very thing that we're commanded and that we're instructed to do. And so we want the family ideal. We want our family to, to function well and to, and, to, and to live up to the things that God's called us to do. But very few of us actually want to do what we're required to do to make that a reality. And so here's, with, within that, this is the tension that we all face and this is the tension that we all feel. This is the tension that dr that's gonna drive this entire series as we talk about family relationships. We know the ideal and we know the real. We know the ideal and we know the real. And between the ideal and the real, there's a gap. There's a gap between the ideal and the real. That's where we all live. We all live in that gap. We all live in the gap. There's the ideal and there's the real and there's a gap. And we are all familiar with the, with the gap. No matter how great your family is, there's a gap. No matter how great the family you grew up in, there was a gap. And wherever that gap exists, we have a choice of what we do with that gap. What will we do with this gap? And our temptation is to try to to, to try to resolve that, that, that tension, to resolve that tension, to resolve that gap, to, to make it so that the gap no longer exists. And most of us will choose one of two things to do to resolve that tension and to close that gap. We, and the first thing is that we would abandon and ignore the ideal because our real doesn't match up. Well, that's impossible. What a crazy standard. No one gets that right all of the time. So it just doesn't matter. We abandon it as old-fashioned, as a relic of a different time because we haven't lived up to it. So it must be unattainable. In other words, I haven't figured it out, so it must be impossible. The ideal must be impossible. The ideal is unrealistic. The ideal doesn't work anymore. The ideal blah, blah, blah. Since my real doesn't match up with the ideal, I abandon and I push out the ideal so that I can feel better about my real. The second temptation on the other end of the spectrum is people who do what I do for a living uh, are often guilty in the other direction. We hold up the ideal so vigorously that we end up condemning anyone who falls short, which by the way is all of humanity. We ignore so many of the realities of the world that we live in. We load people up with a heaping pile of guilt and in the end, we convince people that something is wrong with them because they can't live in our sin-soaked world and live up to God's perfect ideal. See, we have the ideal and we have the real and we have the gap. And our tent and our tension is that we want, or our temptation is that we want to resolve the tension because the tension makes us feel something that we don't want to feel. And what's really interesting about that is that when you look to look at Jesus, you find Jesus doing neither of those things. Jesus chose neither of the ways that we normally try to fill the gap between ideal and real. Instead, here's the way that John, one of Jesus's disciples, described Jesus after watching Jesus in public for three and a half years and hearing everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus taught and watching every interaction that Jesus had. Here's how he described Jesus in relation to the, the ideal and the real. In John chapter 1 verse 14, he said this, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling. 
The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, which you hear that and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. No one, could, no one can see the glory of God and survive. And, and John would say, no, we, we did. And we're here to tell about it. We're here to talk about it. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And he came from the father in a very specific way. He came from the father full of grace and truth. He came from the father full of grace and truth. And truth. And he says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know how John described Jesus? He described Jesus that Jesus was all grace, all truth, all the time. He was all grace, all truth, all the time. That in response to sin, in response to a standard, in response to our humanity, in response to God's expectation, in response to God's ideal, Jesus didn't dumb it down so we could clear the bar. He often raised the bar. He raised the bar on human behavior. He raised the bar as the, the standard got higher. The, the loopholes got closed. The standard got higher. Jesus raised the standard, raised the ideal, raised it so that we would know exactly what's expected in order for us to actually meet and live out the ideal. Under Jesus' teaching and ministry, People understood that the bar was way higher than anyone had ever thought. I'll give an example. His own disciples, after hearing Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage, responded, well, if that's the way it is, it's better for a man not to marry. And Jesus kind of went, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, no. I mean, Jesus never downplayed or dumbed down the standard. Jesus never downplayed or dumbed down the standard, but Jesus also continuously, continually extended elevated levels of grace beyond what anyone thought was reasonable. In fact, when you see Jesus, Jesus constantly during his lifetime in ministry displayed grace for people that the law said were condemned. He touched people that the law said were untouchable. The very first person that Jesus revealed himself to as Messiah was a woman who had been divorced multiple times and was living with a person, was living with a person she wasn't married to. And so you go, wait, wait, wait. Well, Jesus said divorce was bad, but the very first person that Jesus revealed himself to was a divorced woman. Well, how? it's because Jesus was all truth, all grace, all the time. He was absolutely comfortable living in that tension. By the way, he stood in the way of judgmental crowds who were, by the way, were right in their judgment to protect a woman who was about to be stoned to death for her for, for what she had been caught doing. Like this is what Jesus did. He was all truth, all grace, all the time. He believed in the ideal while living in the real, and he was absolutely okay in that tension. Here's what Jesus ultimately did. Jesus raised the standard and deepened the grace. Jesus raised the standard. The standard got higher and the grace went deeper. The standard went higher and so people knew like knew exactly what it would take to measure up and knew that it was possible. They may never measure up, but the grace went ever deeper than anyone thought it could possibly go. Jesus continuously pointed to the ideal in every area of life. Jesus continuously pointed to the ideal while acknowledging and actively showing grace for people living in the real. And this applied to every area of life and because it applied to every area of life for Jesus, 
Jesus, this also applied to how Jesus and his followers talked about the family. See, what we understand from this and what we understand from, from the way Jesus talked about family and the way his followers talked about family is simply this, that God has a standard for your family to live up to because he loves you, because he wants what is best for you, because he wants what's best for your family, because he wants what's best for you in your relationship with your husband or your wife, because he wants what's best for you in relationship with your kids, because he wants what's best for you as a single person who wants to someday have a family. God has a standard for your family because he loves you. God has a standard that he wants you to live up to because he wants what's absolutely best for you because he loves you. And the same, the flip side of the coin is simply this, that God has grace for your family that falls short because he loves you. The standard exists because God loves you. The grace exists because God loves you. The standard exists because God has an ideal because he loves you and wants what's best for you. That God has grace for you because he knows you and I will fall short that he has grace for us because he loves us, that the ideal and the real all acknowledge God's love for us. And so the question that we might ask in this as we open up this series is, well, how do we respond to the ideal and the real? How do we, uh, how do we respond in, when, there, when there's that gap between the ideal and the real? How do we respond? What's the right way to see that tension? What's the way to respond to that, ten that tension? And here's my take, and here's what I think based off how, how we understand Jesus Here's my take and what we're working toward in our family and really throughout our church in, 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 resp in response to family life and family dynamics. We don't drop the ideal. We don't abandon or ignore the ideal because to drop the ideal is to miss out on God's best for us. We dare not drop the ideal because to drop the ideal, to abandon the ideal, to ignore the ideal, to say it's unrealistic, so why even talk about it? would be to ignore and miss out on the best that God could possibly have for us. And we dare not ever diminish God's grace for our real because we would miss how God loves us as a perfect heavenly father. We don't resolve the tension. In other words, we don't resolve the tension. We live striving towards God's ideal, striving towards God's ideal, living every day as if God's best actually is possible for our family. The, acting every day, striving every day to actually live toward God's best for us, to take a step today and a step tomorrow, and it's, like, and it's tiny little baby steps maybe but to every single day actively live as if God's, God's best is possible for our family while understanding that God has an infinite amount of grace for the days and the ways that we fall short. Let me just talk about how, 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 this, how this applies. It, 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 to, to talk about something that's going to make everyone incredibly uncomfortable, and I'm almost a little uncomfortable putting this online because I know what happens online lives forever. Let's, let's talk about divorce. Let's talk about divorce. See, Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage, I already mentioned it earlier. When his own disciples heard it, like they, they, they thought, holy cow, this is so serious and so intense that if this is the way like, God actually expects for husbands and wives to relate to each other and that this thing really is together forever and that's the whole thing. Like, if that's the way that God views marriage, like, it's so intense. Maybe it's better if no one ever got married. And again, Jesus said, well, not everyone can accept that. And, and, and it's like Jesus said that anyone who divorces for any reason other than sexual immorality, meaning their spouse cheating on them, was guilty of the sin of adultery. 
It was painfully clear. It was brutally clear. It, 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 it still is painful and it's so brutal. And, and so, and so I, what, what happens over, over the course of time is if, if we hold that ideal so, so tightly and can't acknowledge the reality, I have seen churches use that verse to beat people over the head. I've seen people run out of churches because the church could not handle and couldn't function with them getting getting a divorce. I've seen kids who felt like they couldn't be a part of a church anymore because of the way a church treated their parents when dad split or when mom and dad split or when 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 things no longer worked at the, worked the way they were supposed to work at homes. I've seen churches use this to convince women they should stay in abusive situations because after all Jesus said and let me just say into the camera right now if any of you if if any of that is part of any of your story I am so so sorry that you were mistreated by a church because they could not handle the tension between ideal and real. And so we kind of look at what Jesus said and we go, well, Jesus, what are you going to do to all those divorced people? What are you going to do to all those sinful divorced people, all those adulterers? And I think Jesus would say, well, I'm, I'm going to go to a cross and I'm going to die for them. I'm going to go to a cross and I'm going to die for them. See, Jesus wasn't arbitrarily anti-divorce. Jesus said that marriage was important because divorce breaks people. It breaks families. It breaks hopes and dreams for the future. Statistically speaking, and this is, I, I came across this a couple weeks ago and this blew my mind. Statistically speaking, growing up in a house with parents who are married to each other is a greater predictor of college graduation, a greater predictor of avoiding prison than race, than income, than parents' education, than literally anything else. I mean, like, I mean, like Jesus understood that marriage, that, that, that there was an ideal, that there actually was something that is worth holding on to about marriage. That even when family gets difficult, there is something worth holding on to, that it's better for, for, for families, that it's better for kids, it's better for societies. Like Jesus understood that. So that's why Jesus held up the ideal that people would marry and stay together for a lifetime. But I think, again, when you watch how Jesus treated people who had been divorced, people who had been broken by life and who had, who had, been broken, who had, who had broken their vows, there was nothing but grace for people who life had broken. I think, it's, it's, I think it's accurate to say this. Jesus wasn't for divorce, but Jesus is for divorced people. Jesus wasn't for divorce because he knew how divorce can break people, but Jesus is for divorced people. Again, the very first person that Jesus revealed himself to as the Messiah was a divorced woman. That Jesus wasn't for divorce, but Jesus is for divorced people. And if you have ever experienced the pain of divorce, there is an abundance of grace from God. There is an abundance of grace from Jesus for you. And so if you ever find yourself in a place where, the, where, where you're in a church that says, no, 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 it's the ideal, it's the ideal, ideal. We understand that, the, that Jesus has an abundance of grace, that God has an abundance of grace for your reality, that your divorce does not disqualify you from a relationship with God, and it doesn't disqualify you from pursuing God's ideal in the future. It does not disqualify you. We, have, we hold up the ideal while we have grace for the real. We have we hold up the ideal while understanding there is grace for the real. Here's here's the second thing I want to talk about as, as as we close out today. This idea about ideal and real. 
Um, it, it, there's this idea of spiritual leadership in the home, of spiritual leadership in the home. And there's that verse that we just read from Ephesians chapter 5 about the husband is the head of the wife, the husband is the head of the household as Christ is the head of the church. And this is not ultimately, sometimes we think this is ultimately talking about, well, who makes the money and who makes the decisions, who makes everything, who, who, you know, who really leads and gets their way in the home. And at the end of the day, that is not what this verse is about. This verse is ultimately about the idea that husbands are to lead the way in their home spiritually. This is about the idea that husbands are to lead their homes spiritually. I have said this before. This does not mean entitlement to get their way all of the time. This is the idea that husbands are to lead the way in their devotion to God, to lead their way in understanding godly wisdom, to lead the way in sacrificial love for the family, to lead the way in selflessness, to lead the way in discernment of circumstances and direction for their family. That's, that's, that's the calling. That's the ideal. That's the ideal. I, and, and, and just in, in case anyone is wondering, I actually do believe that that is the ideal. I believe that's the ideal scripture. I think family functions best when there's a husband who's willing and able to step up and lead spiritually within the home and sets the tone of selflessness and sets the tone of sacrificial love and sets the tone in pursuing godly wisdom and sets the tone in, in, of, of devotion to God. I think that actually is how family works the best. But here's the other thing that I know as, as a person who lives in the real world. Not every husband is ready or willing to be the spiritual leader of their home, but every family needs a spiritual leader. Not every husband is ready or willing to be the spiritual leader of their family, but every family needs a spiritual leader. And so if I could just say something to single ladies who might be watching right now, single ladies, look for a guy who's ready to embrace that role. Single ladies, you should look for a guy who's ready to embrace that role. Married ladies, this may explain some frustration that you feel. Your husband may not be ready or willing to fill that role that you have been waiting for him to fill, or you may not have even known that it needed to be filled. And some of the tension and some of the frustration that you feel, feel is because there is a role in your house that is not being filled properly. And so there's a couple ways you could try to solve this. You could like, you could nag him. You could get on his case over and over and over again until he finally agrees to step up and be the man that he's supposed to be. Because after all, the man's supposed to be the head of the household. That's the ideal. So do it, do it. Grab your shirt collar and you got to be the spiritual leader. You got to be the spiritual leader. Does that sound like it's a really good solution to that issue? It doesn't sound like, like this is the ideal and we're going to hold to the ideal. And if you won't do it, I, you know, like, it's not the way to solve the problem. Or you could have a conversation and ask permission to take the lead until he's ready and willing to take the lead. You go, well, but that's not ideal. It's not, but it's a step forward. It's how we move from here's the reality, here's the ideal. Here's the real, here's the ideal. And our goal is to strive from here every single day to strive to take a step toward the ideal that God would have for us. And even if we never reach the ideal, we get better and we get closer to experiencing what God has for us. See, Jesus was all truth and all grace all the time, even about the family. And so here's the good news. God has a standard for your family to live up to because he loves you. And God has grace for your family that falls short because he loves you. And maybe, just maybe, embracing and clinging to both of those, maybe that's the way that family comes roaring back in the 20s. 
Maybe that's the way we come, family comes roaring back in the 20s. In the middle of all the confusion, in the middle of the frustration, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of everything that we've dealt with and everything that, that maybe your family has experienced, in the middle of all of that, maybe, just maybe, clinging to the ideal and the real, holding to God's standard and holding to God's grace is the way that your family comes roaring back in the 20s. And maybe, just maybe, families that are getting better and better and better as we follow Jesus is one of the best ways to show the world whose we are. That there's a God who loves us, there's a God who loves for care, and cares for us, and there's a God who wants to do the same thing for them. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that there is a standard because you love us. And thank you that there is incredible amounts of grace, unending grace because you love us. Thank you that your standard is informed by your love. Thank you that your grace is informed by your love. And God, so as, today as we begin this series and as we begin talking about the things of family where there is an ideal and there's the real that we live in and there's that gap and there's that tension, God, I pray that we wouldn't just try to get rid of the tension by, by hacking off one side, by either ignoring the, the, the ideal or ignoring the real. I simply pray that we would follow you. I pray that we would strive for the ideal while experiencing your grace and mercy for our real. God, give us incredible wisdom to know what to do with what we have heard today. Give us incredible courage to actually put it into practice. And God, as you do, I simply pray over the next few weeks, over the next month as we talk about family, God, would you bring healing to our families? Would you bring growth to our families? Would you bring love where love has been lost? Would you bring respect where respect has been lost? Would you bring honor where honor has been lost? And every step of the way, I just simply pray that you would help us to get better and better and better as we follow you in our families. We love you, God, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.